0: Sleep in Shreveport Woke up in Abilene Wondering why This is hell. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. By the way, another side effect of getting the second dose of the vaccine appears to be uh, intense exhaustion and area-wide internet outage. So sorry for not being able to do a show yesterday. Unfortunately, the internet was out in our area for a few hours, so our apologies. As of Saturday, following the most recent mass killing in Indianapolis That city's third this year alone CNN was reporting that the United States had experienced 147 mass shootings this year They were citing the Gun Violence Archive A not-for-profit that tracks mass shootings in the United States Since that report four days ago There have been eight more mass shootings At least, and I think there have been more None of those shootings are considered mass murders by the Gun Violence Archive as they define mass murder as four or more people being killed. And in the recent shooting in Kenosha on Sunday, three died, while in another stabbing in Houston, two died. Or sorry, shooting. So far, the GVA, the Gun Violence Archive, says there there have been 11 mass murders in the U.S. this year. That means that we are averaging over one mass shooting a day And every 10 days in the United States, we are witnessing another mass murder. Red flag laws and background checks, which are always suggested as a remedy immediately following a mass killing, have proved to be ineffective. The most recent mass killer in Indianapolis was still able to legally buy the gun he used, despite his own mother, concerned about her son's mental well-being, calling the police on him to take away his guns. And they did remove a shotgun from the premises. So why can't we do anything, seemingly at least, seemingly can't do anything about mass shooting and mass murder? Why does it keep happening over and over again here in the United States? And why, after each horrific event, does it seem like we repeat the same old solutions that never seem to stop the next mass shooting and killing? And what is it about the United States that we have so many mass killings? We'll learn that, sure, it's because we have a lot of guns, but it's more than that when we speak with journalist Seamus McGraw. Author of From a Taller Tower, The Rise of the American Mass Shooter Seamus has received the Freedom of Information Award From the Associated Press Managing Editors The Golden Quill Award As well as honors from the Casey Foundation And the Society of Professional Journalists Seamus is also author of The End of Country, Dispatches from the Frack Zone Betting the Farm on a Drought Stories from the Front Lines of Climate Change And A Thirsty Land, The Fight for Water in Texas You can follow Seamus on Twitter at McGraw. If it's Wednesday, which means producing today, it must be Richard Norwood. No, it is not. It is Alex Jerry spelling Richard Norwood today. R- Alex, how have you been?
1: Uh, I tell you, angrily eating a quesabirria taco in the snow because the internet <laughs> didn't work yesterday was uh, not the way to first have a quesabirria taco.
0: <laughs> you were. Uh, it was already snowing when you left. Oh yeah. I uh, say I didn't know it was snowing until later on in the uh, evening when I came over here to feed Mel. Oh yeah, it's supposed to be sh- snow again today. Uh, you know, it's always Chicago When it's three weeks after opening day And it's still <laughs> snowing Always outside. respect
1: the last frost date, everybody All the gardeners out there Always respect that last frost date Did you get screwed? Oh, no, I always respected the last frost <laughs> date I got, I got my plants inside
0: I watched some of the uh, Raoul Peck series Exterminate the Brutes On the murderous history of white supremacy In the United States and globally and To be honest, it's, it's, it's really good And everyone should see it So they can understand the genocide's committed By white people and why, but for me, in any history se- series, no matter how high quality the information given or how well written it is, as soon as reenactors get involved, my suspension of disbelief, my avoidance of critical thinking about the topic, it immediately snaps. And all I can think of is when this person went to college and got a degree in theater. Was their goal to be playing a dead person in a historical reenactment on TV? And I can't help but wonder if the actors don't spend their weekends at medieval fairs playing 13th century kings while eating a leg of mutton, which is an image that kind of ruins an intense story of human extermination. So, it's worth watching as all of Raoul Peck's stuff is, but I gotta tell you, man. Reenactors just throw me off, so be prepared. More importantly than any of that, Alex, what's this week's question from Hell for your listening on for our listening audience?
1: This week's question from Hell is: What are you bo- What are you doing to boost your inevitable social credit score? What are you doing to boost your social credit score?
0: The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever this is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on Support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported. This is Hell without you we got nothing so thanks to all of you for your support you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio or you can direct message it to us via twitter at this is hell radio or you can email it to either of us at chuck at this is hell.com or alex at this is hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner Following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. This week, Jeff wants to help you design your own dementia, which sounds handy. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's Question from Hell following our guests. Not only can you email us, tweet at us, message us via Facebook, you can also send us stuff to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, D E V O N, second floor, is Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And thanks again to KP Printing in Detroit for sending us more of your art. We got to get in touch with them about being part of our art show This is Art during our next This is How anniversary and listener appreciation party Whenever that is And we're still hoping for possibly having that party On Labor Day weekend We got an email about the possible party From another artist listener Justin, who writes Hey Chuck Hope your second jab vaccination went well. We just got ours this past Saturday, and Hannah said she felt like she was tripping afterwards, although it may have been from wearing an older pair of glasses with an outdated prescription. How likely How likely will the 6th annual, actually 25th annual, oh, oh, yeah, he's got it right, how likely will the 6th annual 20th anniversary party Be happening on Labor Day this weekend We've got some credit card mileage points To burn and though It would be fun to come out to Chicago It'll probably just be Sunday through Tuesday Any cheap hotel recommendations I found an Airbnb that's near carries Anyway Hope all is well, Justin As for my second jab You can hear how that went By listening to Monday's show And you can hear my misgivings about getting the vaccine as I waited in line for the vaccine on last Friday's Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to at patreon.com slash hell, And whenever anyone looks through my glasses, they think they are tripping because glasses for a legally blind man with a neurological condition and perfect eyeballs, those kinds of glasses do real weird things when bending light. As for the listener appreciation anniversary party art show deal, we are still hoping... Hoping to be there on Labor Day weekend, Sunday would be great to give us a day to prepare and a day to recuperate But Justin and everyone else listening will likely not know for certain until at least early June Giving us us at least three months to get our act together and all of you three months to make travel plans That is, if it will be safe to travel by Labor Day, we don't know Who knew scheduling a party during a pandemic that attracts people from all over the United States and around the world would be so problematic? Last week, we also got an email from Rue in Glasgow suggesting we have Graham Burnett on the show to talk about his book, The Vegan Book of Permaculture. From Burnett's writing and Rue's and, email, we determined permaculture is about taking your time and constantly practicing your observation skills to do the radical work of investigating the root causes. Of any problem, which is what we have been doing on the show, whether we recognize it or not, since we began back in 1996. Rue sent a follow up email writing, Just got to listen to the show. Good stuff. I think there's a very real case to be made for this is helping permaculture in journalism. Maybe a question for whichever guest you can find. Cheers, guys. Rue. Listener Bryant then chimes in with his thoughts on permaculture writing. Hi, Chuck. Happy to hear you discussing permaculture on the show. My business partner and I are permaculture designers in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I've seen a long times I've been a long time supporter of the show, and it was pleasant to hear the discipline showcased. I very much see my work as being as equally informed by your show as by any of the permaculture practitioners I've read. A lot of our work is fighting against what we call epitaph development, you know. It, Tidy, horrid housing developments Called the apple orchard Or what used to be an apple orchard Orchard. That sort of work is informed by your work Not permaculture If you're exploring permaculture guests Please go straight to the source One of the two co-originators of the permaculture movement Is still alive David Holmgren is a fantastic interview, And frankly, I'd love nothing more than to hear him interviewed by you we, He normally is uh, interviewed by people Who kind of worship him And it's really tiresome Bryant then includes a link and says, "Here's Holmgren discussing energy descent, and D E S C E N T, and the four likely future hells in which we will find ourselves conspiring together." He also wrote a, a great book about uh, retrofitting suburbia to withstand those future scenarios, which also, while also deepening community ties and solidarity. And Bryant adds, "I'd love to hear you interview Tyson Yunkaporta, author of Sand Talk." How Indigenous Thinking Can Save The World. He's an Australian Indigenous fellow whose book I thoroughly enjoyed. Thanks so much for the work you do. You got me through many long dishwashing shifts before I started my business, Drinking in Solidarity. Bryant. Thanks for the suggestion, Bryant, and thanks to Rue in Glasgow for starting this conversation amongst our listeners on a topic we have not addressed on the show yet. And Tyson Yung-Caporta's Sand talk, how indigenous thinking can save the world Sounds fascinating Brian, if we have either of your guest suggestions on the show We will be thanking you on air I really like the idea of permaculture journalism That focuses on the root causes of issues Instead of getting distracted by the Detail and minutia. You can send your comments to, to on the show, guest or topic suggestions to chuck at this is dot com, DM us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, message us via Facebook at Facebook.com slash this is hell radio, or just send us stuff in the actual mail to this is hell, two two five one West Devon Avenue, Chicago, Illinois. 60659 Coming up, mass shootings and killings Plague the United States and there is seemingly No end in sight Alex will have more of your answers to this week's Question from Hell which is What are you doing to boost your social credit score What are you doing to boost your social Credit score The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell Wins whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want Which you can see right now by going to ThisIsHell.com Slash Support Something go to the cell.com and click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's scratch mail, Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but send it to us as soon as possible. Alex will be telling you who is on tomorrow's show as well later today. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell, and when you consider the continuous reports of mass shootings and mass killings in the United States Really feels like you are looking deep into a bottomless chasm of despair that has no clear cut solution. After each deadly rampage, we look for the simple fix of red flag laws and background checks, which apparently do not work. So what is it that we are missing about our understanding of mass shootings and murders that keeps us from determining the best way to stop this deadly scourge? With an average of more than one mass shooting every day in the U.S. and every 10 days another mass murder. Here to help us get a better understanding of mass shootings and mass killings, we are very fortunate to have with us today journalist Seamus McGraw, author of from a taller tower the rise of the american mass shooter welcome to this is hell shamis
2: well thank you very much for having me i'm grateful for the opportunity
0: Seamus, I really want to thank you for being willing to reschedule today. I apologize for our internet outage yesterday. I promise it was not me putting a fork in a toaster somewhere.
2: <laughs> no problem at all. No problem
1: at all.
0: You describe the 1966 University of Texas mass shooting from the main building tower that killed 16, wounded 31, and 35 years later, in 2001, another victim lost her life because of injuries resulting from that shooting. You write there had been mass murders in America before. Our history is steeped in mass violence, but this was something different deadly random utterly inexplicable many argue the first mass shooting in the united states was the 1949 camden new jersey shootings when a gunman walked through his neighborhood and killed 13 people so to you what makes but that the- was an explicable rampage
2: that was you're talking about UNRWA. yeah and unruh was um actually um if you turn around and look at the uh the 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 law uh that defines um incapacity mental incapacity, um, it's named after UNRWA in New Jersey. Okay, it's, uh, that was a different situation precisely because as horrific as it was, uh, similar to one that happened years later in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania with George Banks, um, there was still an explanation that um, not only made sense, but made law. What made the shooting from the tower in Austin significantly different was that it was no longer an act of violence that, despite our best efforts to do so, could be explained away by some mythic tumor. It wasn't an act of violence that could be explained away by some kind of sectarian cause. This was us against us for no apparent reason other than a sense of grievance and overwhelming narcissism and I think that became the trigger for an entire species of crime that has occurred ever since. Uh, Chuck, I live in eastern Pennsylvania. Um, I woke up this morning to uh, word that there had been an active shooter situation at a gas station, my 19-year-old daughter frequents and where I stop often. Uh, A lot remains to be developed out of that, but what we know now is that uh, a gunman, for whatever reason, uh, opened fire on a woman in 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 an adjacent car on Route 22 She drove to a nearby Wawa. He turned up at the Wawa. He shot one person and wounded them, shot another person and killed them,
0: and then went about a half mile down the road.
1: And you know what? There's a great deal we won't know about this.
2: And the reason we won't know it is that that event which has already triggered what I refer to later in the book as sort of the drifting fog of war and peacetime, doesn't even count, doesn't even count. The body count isn't sufficiently high. They tell me that uh, our indigenous northern neighbors have a couple of hundred words for snow. I have no idea, I have no idea whether that's true, because I don't speak the language, I speak American. And we have way too damn many definitions for these kinds of atrocities that continue to happen.
0: The stereotypes that we have Is something that you focus on and that you Demystify a lot. One of them is that All these shooters are antisocial Loners or suffering from mental illness But they also had far too easy access To high-powered weaponry And all we have to do is limit that access And get them the mental help they need And problem solved. Because those seem To be the only two ways we address Mass shootings. One side saying we need to Address mental health alone and the other side saying Sure, mental health, but also limiting access to Guns used in mass shootings. are mass shootings are they just a toxic mix of mental health issues and access to guns and that's it
2: no but those quite frankly are the things that we talk about and we talk about them to enforce to a very great extent what i refer to over and over again as the silence between gunshots There is no silence on Earth, deeper than the silence between gunshots, and we enforce it. Now, I'm going to take issue with something you had said earlier, Chuck, which is the idea that our laws, um, such as they are, don't work. See, I don't think that's true. But I do think that they haven't been given an opportunity to work.
0: Let's talk about red flag laws. Let me ask ask you something real quick right there. So is it a matter of enforcement that the laws are on the book and that the books and the laws are good, but they're just not being enforced?
2: No, we need, no, no, we certainly need, only 19 states have, for example, red flag laws. Um, And uh, if they were broader, um, I think there would probably be, uh, they would probably be more effective than they were. We don't know. Whether or not the uh, murderous, suicidal uh, Brony, apparently, um, who massacred people in Indianapolis uh, was ever even processed under that state's red flag law. And here's one of the problems that we have. Even red flag laws in our fractured, hyper-partisan, grievance-driven culture have become a flashpoint. We have, I'm not saying this is what happened in Indianapolis, but I will say that across the country, we have law enforcement officers, we have prosecutors, and we have judges who are are ideologically hostile to the very idea of red flag laws because it is an infringement on what many of them see as a divine right and therefore are, I can put it most charitably by saying inconsistent in their application of those gun laws. You suggested, I live in a state um, that has pitiably, pitifully, lacks gun laws. I once accidentally, well, I'm, I, I'm a gun owner, I, I'm, a, I'm an avid hunter. Uh, there's, there's hardly a day that goes by from the middle of October to the end of January um, where I don't have a gun in my hand. now. to be fair, I I carry a flintlock, which is in my estimation, the weapon that the Second Amendment gives me the right to carry. But I once accidentally stumbled into a bank with a rifle in my hand, and I didn't even raise an eyebrow. Um, The idea that more aggressive, Control of certain types of weapons would not have a profound impact, first on mass shootings, but on the larger issue of violence, gun violence as well. I think is uh, I think is mistaken. One of the things that we find, and I write about this um, a fair amount is that you find in an inordinate number of these mass public shooting cases, a specific type of weapon is used. What we conventionally call assault rifles, um, AR-15s and and the sort. But it's even a particular species of those that are um, designed to appeal. To a carefully marketed person, they become fetish items. If you were to reduce access to those, just those, you might have a significant impact, if nothing else, on the number of casualties, if not the number of shootings in these situations. But you can't do that, frankly, on a state-by-state basis. This is something that has to be addressed across state boundaries, and it's not. And it's not because I argue that the same factors that drive so many of these killers an absolute bottomless narcissism, a sense of grief, uh, grievance and, and, and rage, um, a quest for fame or infamy, no distinction, are present at the soci- in the society at large. It not only makes it that much more difficult to address the challenges that are in front of us, It makes it that much more difficult to even identify these guys in advance because, as I said, with the very first one, they're just like us, only more so.
0: So I do something that you do, and that is I do everything I can to not say the names of famous murderers because their names don't matter to me. And for, for many, at least the stereotype is they are seeking that recognition, and I just refuse to play that game. You mentioned the shooter's name only once when it comes to the 1966 shooting at the University of Texas, and you write, it will be the last time his name is mentioned here. If there is a contagion in this country and in those countries that take their cues from our culture, if there is a virulent epidemic of mass irrational violence in this nation, and there is, then the gunman who murdered 17 people in Texas on August 1st, 1966, is patient zero. I found that concept Genius. That's patient zero, as in the first carrier of a communicable disease and an outbreak of related cases. How do we better understand mass shootings when we think of them as a communicable disease?
2: I think the first thing that you do is you contain the epidemic. We have, to put it quite, let me put it to you this way, Chuck. I did not set out to write. A 2,000 count indictment of my culture for complicity, uh, accessory to murder. But that's what I ended up writing. We have a profound um, cultural pathology. And I believe that that cultural pathology mirrors in time the growth of this phenomenon. We are, we have the luxury as a generally affluent people to obsess on our petty grievances. We are isolated in our communities to the point where we don't know the guy next door, but we are so hyper-connected that we know the most intimate details of the lives of strangers a continent away. And we gather into these little floating islands of rage. This exists in an atmosphere that has always, always through our history been drawn to violence, prizes the individual uber and also has been shot through with a pervasive idea of bigotry and racism. These are things that can only be responded to generationally. It's going to take generations for us to confront those aspects. But there are things we can do in the shorter run. Now, I turned around and I said, for example, limit access to the specific weapons, the specific weapons that these killers often are drawn to and fetishize. We've done it before and it had an impact. Most of the deadliest shootings that have occurred in the United States in connection with this phenomenon have occurred after the 1994 assault weapons ban expired. Now, critics of that law and of the new proposal proposals Have made the argument that, well, you know what? That was just cosmetic. That was just cosmetic. You were banning guns because they were ugly. And you know what? There's merit to that argument. There is merit to that argument. The reality is you could, during the period of time before the law sunsetted, acquire a weapon that did effectively what the weapons that were banned did, but they didn't have the same resonance for the particular guys who are drawn to these. You could tailor that even more finely, but we won't because of all those factors I mentioned before. You could turn around and expand background checks so that the same background checks that I would have to go through in a place like Connecticut, I would have to go through in a place like Pennsylvania. And that would absolutely, absolutely, that would weed out a fair number of people who we don't believe ought to have weapons. Not only that. But if you required universal background checks in all venues, you would also prevent a significant number of firearms from slipping onto the black market. Every handgun in most of the – or every handgun, every firearm in most of the mass public shootings that have occurred in the United States since 1966 have been legally acquired but you know what at some point along the line every firearm used for a shooting in Chicago or in Philadelphia or in a rural community outside of me every one of those started legally too There is a way of addressing this. There is a way of addressing this. But it requires first an acknowledgement of the problem, which in our hyper-divided culture, we are are loathe to acknowledge. And it requires a recognition that we're all in it together. And that's something I think we're, at the moment, incapable
0: of doing. Seamus, we had a guest on last year, and unfortunately his name is eluding me right now. He's an anthropologist in Canada, maybe Alex remembers who I'm talking about, who was on, and he was saying that he is a hunter, that he owns guns, and he didn't understand, and we always hear this, right, Canada does everything better. We should be having Canada's health system here in the United States. All we have to do is just apply that system here in the United States. He said that he can own whatever long gun he wants to. He cannot own, obviously, an assault rifle. He cannot own a handgun. Uh, And he said, and because I have a right to a gun, he goes, people have guns in Canada. We just don't kill people as much as the United States. If you just had our laws, our laws could help help your law it could be a good influence on your laws do you think that is the case are you aware of what uh canadian gun laws are
2: i'm i'm i'm, I'm very aware of, of canadian gun laws and canadian gun laws are designed for canadians um <laughs> and and that i think is the fundamental problem <laughs> um i don't think they're necessarily necessarily exportable to the united states And they're not because we have at our core a fundamentally different culture. One of the things I have found with Canadians, um, my daughter, my my two oldest kids are both U S Canadian dual nationals. My two youngest kids are both U S Australian dual nationals. I only marry people if they bring subsidized health care and education to the table. (laughs) But, um, I think, um, there has never, it has never been among Canadians. um, Firearms have never been viewed as much as part of their national identity as they are among Americans. Um, There is a tendency And this used to be true. It was true when I was growing up with um, firearms. A view that they were a tool to be respected. And I don't mean culturally respected, I mean respected by the individual who wields it. Something has happened in our culture in which they've become something else. And I think we always had the seeds of it, but I think it's been commercialized and commoditized. I think it's become um, part of our national dogma now that these, that firearms in general and these specific weapons, these specific weapons are now part of our tribal identities. And that makes it that much more difficult to address the issue. Now, I'm going to say something that is, that may surprise you, Chuck. Um, if I had my druthers, I don't have an AR-15. I have, as I said, I have a flintlock. I have a 30 caliber lever action that I use. I have a flintlock pistol. I have a 22 lever action and I have, uh, a 25 caliber handgun and a 50 cal or a 45 caliber flintlock pistol. I don't have an AR15 because I don't need an AR15. I can hit what I'm shooting at with one shot most of the time. But I can understand. I can understand why somebody in a remote stretch of the Chihuahuan Desert in Presidio County in Texas, where it's an hour response time for police and where as history has shown us, there are places in this country where you're not always sure which side the police are gonna be on when they show up. I can understand why somebody in that environment might feel more comfortable with an AR-15 in their hands. I think it's the wrong choice. I think it's a terrible weapon for self-defense, but that's their choice. What I would recommend in the best of all possible worlds is to turn around to that person and say, you know what, sure, you can have one. You can have one. What I'm going to ask of you, though, is that you turn around and submit to um, basically the standard that used to be applied to get a concealed carry permit. We know that people who turn around and undergo those sorts of that sort of uh, that sort of check statistics show us are rarely, if ever, involved in the criminal use of a weapon. That might be one solution. The problem is, I can't get purchase on that. I can't get purchase on something like that because of the intractability of, frankly, an industry-driven gun lobby that views any concession to common sense. Common sense as an erosion of their standing and so they turn around and they fan culture wars that pit me against a guy who is not that different than me
0: all over the country uh, Seamus, one thing that I I just wanted to ask you about, it, it, I have 50 questions written for you and the, the conversation that we've been having, I haven't even gone to these questions very often. I'm <laughs> sorry. No, 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 no. That's a great I can be long-winded as all. No, hell, no, Jack. no, no. It's not that. It's that we're having an actual conversation, you know, that I don't need to just go to the questions that I've pre-written. And one of the questions that I did not pre-write, because I did not know that is uh, I mean, I knew some of your hunting background. but. Um, one of the things that I've heard from uh, hunters who live in the Southeast United States is that they need AR-15s because of wild boars. That wild- You know what? That's not, that's not, that's not, that's not, that's not, that's not just nonsense. Okay. That's, that, that, that's why I'm trying to get, find out from you.
2: And that is, that is the, that is, it is, it is difficult and dangerous to bring down a wild boar. And I can certainly understand it. Okay. Um, again, You know, same kind of regulations, same kind of regulations, but I can't get us there. I can't get us there. You can't get us there. We can't get us there because that firearm is more about more than the firearm. We have we have permission from no less a far right luminary than the late Antonin Scalia, to do this sort of thing. We have his blessing in Heller, but we can't do it. And we can't do it because it has become a cultural flashpoint. And here's the thing, Chuck, and I think this is an important, I think this is an important issue. I have four kids. I have four kids who grew up in a household with guns. Not one of them has any interest whatsoever in my firearms or in my hunting because in the culture in which they're growing up or have grown, they view weapons also as a tribal icon. They view all weapons, to a great extent, the way I view AR-15s. And again, specific um, examples of that weapon. As a tribal totem to a tribe, for a tribe to which they do not belong, and have no interest in belonging. Now, here's the thing. I'm one guy. Therefore, I think to a very great extent they are more in line with the mainstream of America as it is now, but certainly how how it's going to be in 10, 15, 20 years than I am. And I believe sincerely that the intractability, the refusal to compromise on the part of a bunch of old white guys like me is in the long run going to pose a greater threat to what we now think of as the rights guaranteed by the second amendment, than anything the most progressive gun control advocate could ever propose. I honestly believe that Warren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Louis Gohmert are a greater threat to the Second Amendment than Joe Biden ever could be.
0: How are they a threat more than Biden then?
2: Their intractability, their refusal to acknowledge the crisis that we are facing in terms of gun violence in this country, their refusal to entertain even the most modest approach to not even eliminate, but reduce the casualties on this is ultimately going to, I think, in the public mind, eventually make the image of anybody with a gun a pariah, the refusal, the refusal, the flat out, often nonsensical, refusal, intractability, all or nothing, you know what, metaphorically speaking, I'm not saying this in terms of violence, but you know what, I think I honestly do believe that Americans by and large have already turned away, turned against that kind of thinking. I honestly believe that you could fit every American who opposes the idea of expanding background checks to cover private sellers and gun shows. Um, I think if you were to turn around and take every one of the people that's left in this country and who opposes that you could put them on a hundred hundred foot yacht, borrowed yacht, um, out by the 12 foot line and still have room for a steamer trunk full of $3,000 Italian made suits. Um, this is, the culture is turning against this. Metaphorically speaking, you keep saying to me, I'll give up my gun when you pry my cold, dead hands from around it. A gun, by the way, they're always waving a flintlock when they do it. I would defy half of those guys to even load the damn thing. But you keep saying, I'll give up my gun when you pry my my cold, dead fingers from around it. We are reaching the point where the majority of American people are willing to turn around and say, okay, pal, your call.
0: That's pretty frightening. Uh, I saw a quote last Friday at insider. I don't mean that in terms of advocating violence. I don't mean that the American, the American, right. I think
1: they're
2: not saying that's it. And you know what? Yeah, those, those, those cold dead fingers, they're going to, they're going to die of old age.
0: <laughs> yes, they are. they're
2: going to die of old age and soon.
0: So I saw this quote last Friday at Insider.com from Dr. Gary Slutkin, former head of the World Health Organization's uh, Intervention Department unit. He said, uh, this kind of gun violence is a disease, violence, and it is contagious. One event is a risk factor for another event, just like one event of COVID is a risk factor for another event of COVID. That would imply that we can all catch it if we don't prevent ourselves. If we don't wear a mask, if we don't socially distance from COVID. We could catch it. So are we all potential mass killers?
2: No, we're not all potential mass killers, but we did. No, we're not. Not by any stretch of the imagination. Any more than all those of us who would catch COVID are likely to end up among the fatalities, or are likely to end up on a respirator. Some significant portion will. And the risk of that is something that should motivate the entire society. But just like the gun issue, it breaks along hyper-partisan lines, okay, that it doesn't. In this, I think there's, a, I think there's something even more insidious at play. When we talk about the contagion of uh, violence, the obvious is the, the knock-on effect, the copycat effect that you see in this. Um, When you turn around and look at the massacre at Sandy Hook and how he was informed and how he was um, guided to a very great extent, um, it seems, by those killers that came before. In the book, I refer to it as one of the driving factors for these killers is to kill the last killer, to 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 supplant them, to exceed them. That's the very obvious aspect of this pathology. But there are other ways that this contagion spreads. When we have an episode, like Indianapolis, when we have a slaughter like what happened at the borderline, when we have a massacre, like what happened at the Mandalay Bay, the other killer who I mentioned by name, because I argue that he stripped away all the nonsense and just made it about a taller tower, more firepower and a higher body count, which is really what these are ultimately about. I refer to him as the first postmodern American mass shooter. When we have one of these incidents, because of our hyperconnectedness, the trauma of those events spread in real time, immediately. There's a young man I speak about in the book by the name of Tellur Faunus, who had survived the massacre at the Mandalay Bay, only to be slaughtered a year later, two miles from his home at the borderline in Thousand Oaks, California, by a gunman who had in his uh, extended round magazines that were banned in uh, banned in uh, in California, but because they're not banned elsewhere, he had no problem getting. It. When they found Tell's body, his parents were woken out of their sleep at two o'clock in the morning by a phone call from the other side of the country by Tell's godmother who had seen this on television and called to find out whether or not Tell was all right. We don't know our next door neighbors, but we know the most intimate details of people 3,000 miles away. When they got to Tell, when the police recovered Tell's body and his cell phone, there were a thousand text messages on that cell phone. A thousand people who had been touched in real time by this atrocity and the trauma of that was not bound by the building building In which the slaughter was carried out. It was instantaneous, it was immediate, it was instant. The contagion moves another way. At Santa Fe High School in Texas, there was a young police officer in a prone position outside the school as they were trying to bring that slaughter to the end. Inside that school, inside that school, a couple yards away from where this young officer was in the prone position, his mother, a substitute teacher, was either dead or just about dead from a wound inflicted by a murderer. Cop said to his lawyer later, he said, I'm supposed to protect people, I couldn't even protect my own mother. That's something we have not asked our soldiers to do to face this kind of conflict in their hometowns since at least the Civil War. What impact do you think that has over the long run, Chuck? What impact do you think that has over the thoughts, the actions? of police officers. We we often forget that among those who are traumatized by this is not just you and me and everyone we know, but the first responders are too. There's a story I tell about a veteran police officer trained in a tactical unit alongside other police officers. One of those officers, one of those, those tactical units, a member of one of those tactical units that were first through the door at Sandy Hook, a veteran cop, a veteran, hardened cop, so overwhelmed by what he saw in there that he erased the memory and replaced it with a false one. When they questioned him, he insisted that he took the perimeter, that he never went inside the classroom. The other three guys on his team all said, no, he was standing right there next to me. What's the societal cost of that, Chuck? Let me me take the contagion out one more level. We are, a nation awash in firearms. We are a nation that swims in the toxic waters of racial animus and a lot of toxic preconceived notions But we are first and foremost a nation awash in firearms. What do you think? What kind of impact do you think that has on police officers? We're not the only bigoted country in the world, and yet we have an inordinate number of police shootings. In my limited experience, and it's very, very limited, with police officers in Great Britain, I have seen nothing that makes me conclude that they are any more woke than police officers in the United States. And yet, on an average year, they might have three firearm-related police debts uh, in police custody, or in a police situation. Whereas we have a 1,000 or more. Maybe part of that maybe part of that is the idea that a cop, whatever their personal limitations or prejudices might be, has a legitimate reason to fear that every time they pull over a car, they may be facing the need, they may be facing a weapon. Maybe if we lowered that threat and that can be achieved by turning around and cutting off the flow of weapons, not totally. Maybe we'd see fewer of these. Maybe we'd see fewer cops in the heat of the moment. So we're told. Mistake there taser for their handgun years ago i remember i covered a shooting in a city in new jersey called new brunswick there was a young kid an african-american man of course 21 years old stopped by a cop who had the unfortunately Wild West name of Zane Gray. For some reason the kid ran. For some reason the kid ran. And Zane Gray pulled out his Sig Sar that had a safety on it that had eight pounds of, that required eight pounds of pressure to release the safety, gave chase. Don't know why the kid ran. Don't even remember, to be frank with you, what the original offense was. It certainly wasn't one that warranted the death penalty. But at some point, the story goes that Zane Gray stumbled on a wheelchair ramp alongside a house and the gun discharged. Within a couple of hours of the shooting, the prosecutor at the time declared that it was an accidental shooting. And you know what? It might have been. It might have been that this officer. Overcome by fear. In a country overrun with guns. May have in his fear. applied an accidental few extra pounds of pressure on that safety. And the gun went off. But that's not an accident that needed to happen. That's not an accident that happens in a vacuum. That's not an accident that can be excused. That's an accident that has to be considered in the context. And I honestly do believe that if you lower the number of weapons on the street. You will reduce the likelihood of these kinds of things happening, and then we can begin the generations long process of trying to address the other critical underlying factors of it. But first you have to, with any disease, we started this discussion talking about an epidemic of violence that mutates. And the first thing that you have to do is treat the symptoms that are most likely to lead toward mortality
0: does that answer your question Chuck? yeah definitely it, it answers it perfectly well i've got one last question for you seamus we have been speaking with journalist seamus mcgraw he is author of from a taller tower The Rise of the American Mass Shooter You can follow Seamus on Twitter At Seamus McGraw Our final question for each and every one of our guests Seamus is what we call the question from hell The question you might hate to answer Or we might hate to ask You might hate to answer Our audience might hate your response You write the media has recently made a valiant effort To deny these mass killers the fame or infamy So many of them crave The electronic media particularly Now generally chooses to focus on those killed Or wounded in these atrocities Rather than aggrandizing the killers, but it may well be that in our desperate desire to find a cause, an an explanation, a motive that will make sense of senseless shootings, we're still granting these murderers a measure of perverse celebrity when we publicize their manifestos or their social media postings aligning themselves with some dark movement. So is the media pursuit of motivation then a pursuit of legitimization? And in learning that motivation, do we even ever actually learn the real reason for those senseless killings? Because the one, the one thing I keep thinking about, Seamus, is that when we hear people say uh, the motivation is racial or they're targeting somebody because they're ethnic, religious or gender identity, that, that if we hear that as the motivation, that, that kind of leads to a legitimization of that kind of killing. And that's what frightens me.
2: I, I could not agree with you more. In chapter four, when I talk about the, uh, the, uh, the killer at Christchurch, uh, one of our exports, um, uh, you, you, you just read that chapter and you can see how, how strongly American culture influenced him and how much of a fraud, fake, and phony he actually is, how much of a coward he actually is. But let's turn, turn around and look at another one. My other daughter, my second daughter, lives in Atlanta. And we recently had a massacre in Atlanta that the dead were disproportionately Asian women
0: and working in... There is absolutely no doubt that we as a culture
2: have and particularly certain aspects of our culture have inflamed um, long existing anti-Asian biases. There is no question that we have sexualized and demeaned Asian women in this culture, in our culture. But if I'm to take this murderous nobody at his word, when he tells us that he murdered these women because he could not control his own sexual impulses, what greater confession is there of the rank-base narcissism at the heart of these killers than that? So sure, they wrapped themselves in the cloak of some sort of perverse racial agenda or nationalist agenda or hell their favorite character from my little pony but at the core at the core they're weak scared little boys who think that they're the center of the universe and that Chuck, I'm afraid, is a condition that afflicts far too many of us, not that we'll all be killers, but that it makes it that much more difficult to spot the killers when they're among us.
0: And as you point out, it's, it's the combination, too. Is, yes, it's the narcissism, definitely, but it's the combination of that narcissism and then the victimhood that they also embrace.
2: Absolutely. And you'll notice, Chuck, that I do not use the word victim to describe those people whose lives have been snuffed out by these killers or those who have survived and have shown immense Courage because you know what? Very few of them ever identify themselves to me as victims. Now, victimhood is a mantle claimed by these cheap cowards, so I'll give it to them.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's just very disturbing that these people believe that they are the most important thing in the world, that they're the greatest thing that's ever. That's been the greatest thing since sliced bread. And then all of a sudden, they're at the same time, any problem that they have, they blame it on somebody else and they never take any responsibility for any of their actions or any of their decisions. Seamus, this has been a fantastic conversation. And your book is incredible. And as we tell our listeners, so that's,
2: far, a, that's the worst thing you can ever say to a nonfiction writer. <laughs> what's that? But it's incredible.
0: No, oh, well, I said, oh, I guess so. Incredulous, <laughs> yeah, I guess, yes, it's unbelievably good. I'm not going to say that. I didn't mean that. It's an ama- It's a very, very well written and very informative book, and it gives you perspective that you do not consider at other times, especially in these days of mass shootings when we. Desperately needed. Everybody should go read Seamus McGraw's book, *From a Taller Tower: The Rise of the American Mass Shooter*. This is a really important book. And yeah, the massacre in Atlanta—you know—we've had at least fifty mass shootings since then. So it, that's how many they've been piling up. Thank you so much, Seamus, for being on our show. This really is an honor and a pleasure. And again, thanks for. It's been your been
2: a pleasure. Well, I, I don't want to say it's been a pleasure, but I've, I've enjoyed—I've enjoyed
0: talking. <laughs> All I've right. I promise I won't call your writing incredible again either. <laughs> All right. Take care. James, You too. Bye-bye. Bye. So at one point, he said, I'm going to say something that uh, may surprise you, and he then used the word druthers. So <laughs> that did surprise me. Also, uh, Alex, how many crows from a rooster? How many crows from a rooster? Got any guesses? I was counting them.
1: This is a banner week or banner two weeks for a bird song, right? <laughs> yeah, because yeah. we had uh, Kevin Waite had like a sparrow or something underneath. The I
0: got th- emails from people saying that that mu- the, uh, bird song was beautiful and they couldn't identify because they live in the Midwest. Well, he
1: uh, I think he's in the UK. I think he's in Durham. So if we have any UK <laughs> listeners uh, to go back and listen to last week's Kevin Waite interview, if you can identify that bird song, uh, I'll spring for sending you some uh, T.I.H. merchandise. So uh, first person to do that.
0: Uh, guesses on how many crows?
1: Seven? I yes! Saw, I saw oh, my you, I God! Saw, I saw you write. For people who were not listening, Chuck was writing down and smiling every time uh, we heard a rooster crow.
0: <laughs> All of this is proof that this is not the media. This is hell.
1: Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, I did want to say, context aside, it was just nice to hear about Wawa again. Yeah, it was. It brought me back to my uh, Pennsylvania days. I've always been a Sheets partisan myself, though. This week's question from hell. At least you didn't bring up Shaws. This week's question from hell. Shaws? <laughs> it's a main,
0: main place. They don't call it Shaws, though. It sounds too much like Showa.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> Far well. too much like it. Uh, what, are you do, uh, what are you doing to boost your social credit score? What are you doing to boost your social credit score? Mark C says, Imminentizing the Eschaton. Failing <laughs> that, starting an anti-substack substack, I guess. <laughs> David Z says, Flushing after pissing in dark alleys. Aww. Chase C says, Selling low-quality anti-capitalist NFTs where the only form of payment is personal social credits. Jack W says, CIAing my way into being the Secretary of Transportation. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing to boost your social credit score? Shane M says, First, I have to find a mathematical expert on negative numbers to explain where I'm at now. <laughs> Charlie B says, Just coincidence that Goofus has DJT hair? <laughs> Mason B says, Rolling joints for people. <laughs> Aaron D says, starting a nonprofit for kids interesting in Tuvan throat singing. Sweet. Justin M says, increasing my social debt. Tom G says, stealing Gallant's identity and starting a smear campaign to cancel Goofus. The reason is because I post, I couldn't find a good image, so I used uh, Goofus and Gallant, an old school one for this uh, Facebook post Of this. What are you doing to improve your social credit score? Dan S says, I'm the self-appointed president of the Society for the Free and Unpredictable Movement of Pedestrians. Fabio L says, I would rather die than be pulled into this stupid social control game. <laughs> Continues to Facebook. <laughs> and finally, David G says, Subvertising.
0: And in case you want to know, my favorite Tuvan Throat singing band is Hun Hur 2. They're really, really great. They write great songs about uh, how much they love their horses. We'll have even more of your answers to this week's Question from Hell on tomorrow's show. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Thursday's live one-hour show here at ThisIsHell.com beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. As
1: a listener suggestion, we're going to have Keaton Joshi on to talk about—well, I think the listener got in touch to have us talk about the, what happened with Texas losing— Uh, an entire state worth of power for a week. Yeah. But uh, Chuck has been wanting for a long time to talk about Bitcoin and fossil fuels, and so he has written about both, Keaton, so I'm sure we'll maybe talk to him about both.
0: And with these new, the new uh, NFT... Art that's being uh, used They're saying the exact same thing about that How that's creating uh, Contributing to climate change a huge amount No more art please (laughs) We'll also be sharing emails you've been sending us On modern monetary theory Back in January we heard from Jason on the subject Suggesting Stephanie Kelton Author of The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory And The Birth of the People's Economy Then last week we got an email from Anthony Who uh, suggested several different guests Including Stephanie Kelton and then we got a Facebook message from another Jason suggesting Stephanie Kelton, and we now have a third listener suggest fourth, I think, as Stephanie as well as others. And the suggestions on MMT guests keep rolling in. So thanks to Anthony and Alex, whose writing we'll share on tomorrow's show. We're currently pursuing someone on the topic, and you might be surprised, happily or otherwise, to find out who we are going to have on the show to talk about modern monetary we're not, we're theory. We're not
1: revealing that it's no. uh, Kashama Sawant.
0: <laughs> <laughs> is that K? That K is silent. Isn't it supposed to be silent? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. I just do it because I'm lazy, and I, saying Kashama kind of hurts my throat. So uh, Thursday show, we don't know yet? Or no, that we do Thursday That's Thursday show. show. Yeah, See, actually, I got for these yesterday. notes. I'm yeah, sorry. And during the moment of truth this week, Jeff Dorchin wants to help you design your own dementia will be handy. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host, live streaming host, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to our guest, Seamus McGraw. Thanks for rescheduling, Seamus. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my
2: demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. No. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.